You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. So, as often happens, when we're posting articles at laborunionnews.com, we run across articles that are rather intriguing. And last week, I think it was last week, it might have been the week before, I ran across an article entitled, A Pro-Union Vision for the 21st Century and Beyond. And its subtitle, Workers Should Be Able to Organize for Their Mutual Benefit, But Regulations from the Assembly Line Era Are Holding Back Labor Market Innovation. And I read the article and actually read it a couple times, and it's very intriguing. Some of the ideas that were posited in the article, I wanted to explore a little bit more. So I reached out for the writer or the author, and I was able to get hold of Michael Farron. And he is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His research focuses on the effects of government favoritism toward particular businesses, industries, uh, and occupations, and he specializes in labor, economic development, and transportation issues. He's testified before Congress and numerous state legislatures, and his research and commentary have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and on National Public Radio. Michael received his Ph.D. in Applied Economics from The Ohio State University and participated in the Frederick Bastiat Fellowship at the Mercatus Center. He's a licensed professional engineer and received his M.S. in Transportation Engineering and B.S. in Civil Engineering from The Ohio State University. In any case, we had a very long conversation, but a very fascinating one, and it was interesting to explore the different ideas and concepts and how unions can participate in the 21st century. So here's Michael Farron. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Michael Farron, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? I'm very well. Glad to be here. So tell us about yourself. Well, I'm a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. It's a research center that focuses on essentially translating the academic research to policymakers to help them solve public policy problems. Mercatus in particular is a market-focused research center. Some people might say free market, uh, but that's not the, the full story because a better way to understand uh, free markets is as a subset of free societies. So we are a group of free society scholars figuring out how to get us closer to freer societies. So define free societies. Uh, is that classical liberalism? I, I would say that that is a, if you wanted to encapsulate all of it together, classical liberalism is a good way to do it. Uh, it, it respects the individual, the, the dignity of the individual. It respects uh, both conservatism and progress, progressivism, that there's, there's things currently with society that uh, maybe ought to be changed, but there's a lot of wisdom to conservative thinking as well, because we have the traditions and we have the practices that we have now, often because they were well-suited to what came in the past. So we have to kind of transcend this this question of uh, 
not be reactionary, not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are some things that perhaps uh, uh, should evolve, but we should also recognize that there's a good reason why some practices uh, are the way that they are. Uh, and and given that your your podcast is mostly about labor policy and in particular labor unions, we can get dig into uh, is this a one of those things that we should evolve or is this uh, well suited to our current environment? My general uh, uh, feeling on our current uh, schema of of labor law and regulations that affect not only companies but also unions and workers themselves is that it's really tailored to a a 1930s kind of factory floor, assembly line, uh, labor as a commodity idea. And uh, we're, we're very far away from that today. Well, what, what caught my eye was the article that you had written a couple of weeks ago, and it was a pro-union vision for the 21st century and beyond. And obviously, I think you know that, you know, we post all of these articles at Labor Union News. And as I was reading through it, I was like, this is kind of interesting because you're kind of proposing going back to what would have been the pre-Wagner Act, the, and even before that, more of the Samuel Gompers style of unionism. I, I think that's right. Uh, I have to admit that uh, I'm a labor economist, but labor econ is a very wide field. And I'm personally just getting into the topic of labor union policy. So I think that this is an area where you can actually uh, introduce me to a lot more of Gomper's thinking and kind of this is a, a mutually educational opportunity uh, for us, perhaps, or, or, or maybe even you more for me. But what I was trying to do in this article was outline, let's, let's reconsider the idea of, of unions altogether. Let, let's kind of say, let's go back to the drawing board and say, what, can, what could they be if we kind of said, let's get rid of the status quo and come up with exactly what they should be. So it's a blue sky thinking approach to the way that we might want to adjust policy for the 21st century because these labor policies that were created during the depths of the Great Depression don't really suit us very well anymore. And I think even unions themselves might uh, might admit to that. Um, uh, and and uh, if, if you really press them, and I, I've seen this kind of idea expressed by a lot of union advocates and magazine articles in, in these times and, and other union uh, uh, platforms. And so I'm kind of like, how can I how can I thread the needle between right and left? pro-union, anti-union, and say, what do unions, what are unions really good for? And how can we, given that I'm a scholar at the Mercatus Center, and Mercatus is the Latin word for markets, we're all about how can we use markets and design markets to improve people's lives? How can we create a market for unionism? Uh, and, and that was kind of the overarching approach that I took to writing this article. Well, the, I guess to touch on Gompers just for a second, which is, I think, the direction you're going with this. Um, Gompers was more about voluntarism versus compulsion. And yes, okay. that's that's one of the arguments I've been for years having is, you know, instead of moving more towards compulsion, we need to make it more free. And that's kind of where your, your, uh, the tone of your article is headed. 
Absolutely. And so the interesting thing about that is, as you talk about the original sin, which is exclusive representation, union's original sin. And it's fascinating reading that because that is an argument that's been going on for quite a while when the Wagner Act was put out. And it's also in the Railway Labor Act as well. But um, the 1935 Wagner Act was, you know, the exclusive representation. And, you know, if in Gompers, I think, was more towards, look, if we do our jobs right and we're doing, you know, better by workers, the moral suasion, to use his term, should make us more appealable. And I'm totally bastardizing that, that statement. But that was his <laughs> that was his main premise, which gets, you know, then you go into right to work and, and all the extensions of that, the 1947 amendments, Taft-Hartley amendments. And that's, that's why I found fascinating about your article is like, wow, he's kind of preaching what I've been saying for 25 years. That's, that's good to hear. And uh, yeah, when, when I wrote the article to me, you know, being someone digging into this field uh, more specifically uh, and, and acquiring expertise in it, uh, I, I, I was looking at it. I'm like, this seems like such a good idea. It can't be original. Like, it can't be unique. I know that other people have had to, like, have this idea before. And I did a, a fair amount of back reading uh, to make sure that uh, I wasn't saying anything, at the very least, incorrect. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm really interested to hear uh, from you and, and from others as well, how, how have these ideas already been engaged with? And what were the, the conceptual difficulties or or uh, policy or political difficulties that would inhibit them from being enacted. And, and that's one of the areas where I have strengths in terms of like, how can we design policies such that at least everybody's only a little unhappy rather than uh, creating, you know, massive enemies and, and, and how, how do we make this politically feasible, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Well, um, so I'm going to jump articles to another one that you just wrote a little while back, which is don't destroy union regulations because you don't understand them. And that's talking about the PRO Act. And then let's the, come the, back to the, the PRO Act and the Taft-Hartley Act, because the, right. the PRO Act would uh, attempt to undo significant pieces of the Taft-Hartley Act. Right, which that's the 47 amendments, the 1947 right. amendments. So I think to answer your question, like where where things are heading, we're probably heading more towards the compulsion side versus mm -hmm. the freedom side or liberty Absolutely. side, right? So I don't know, um, I don't know that you'll find that common ground that you're seeking, and this mm -hmm. is just because even from the time I left the union movement to today, it's just moved so far to the left and mm -hmm. more towards compulsion, and so to the point now where under the PRO Act, they don't want employers to even have the right to speak, let alone um, have any kind of say in the terms of the, what the bargaining unit is, all that sort of stuff. And to take it even further, they've got within the PRO Act, and, and we should touch on the independent contractors a little bit, they've got in the PRO Act one of the things that was also in the Employee Free Choice Act 12 years ago, um, binding arbitration. So if you don't have a contract within 90 days, you go to mediation, another 30 days of mediation and they appoint or can have a government appointed panel of arbitrators. And then they dictate what's your contract. 
which takes the rights away from workers and from employers. Yeah, the the, the PRO Act, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine a a more problematic piece of legislation, at least from a labor policy perspective. Right. And so the, the one thing I found fascinating, and I'm literally going back from screen to screen on both articles. Um, <laughs> so the one thing I found fascinating is the um, statement you had in there about the independent contractors and the genesis of that within the 47 amendments, 1947 amendments, you could just keep saying 47. Um, <laughs> so that was fascinating because I didn't really know that background with that, but um, so the PRO Act, obviously, they want to make the 59 million Americans that are independent contractors unionizable, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and that that cuts into a lot of different things. Um, you know, do people have the right to dictate their own destiny and et cetera, free agency, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, my colleague Leah Pelikashvili is a gig economy expert. Is he? Excuse me. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, Leah. Uh, sorry, I, I misspoke a moment ago. Uh, yeah, she is a, a labor policy gig economy expert, and um, uh, her research uh, finds that 10% uh, of U.S. workers earn their primary source of income from the gig economy, and about a third of all U.S. workers earn some sort of income from independent contracting. So uh, as as platform technology and, and smartphones and everything has unlocked this new kind of on-demand style of, of work. Uh, more and more workers who traditionally might have been uh, within the arc of new unionization have been outside that arc because they're independent contractors. And the Taft-Hartley Act, the 47 Amendments, specifically says that independent contractors cannot be organized into a union. The idea at the time was that if you had that kind of, uh, if you had a, con a union of independent contractors, you could end up with a labor market cartel. It's a little bit ironic because you could very fairly uh, describe the current uh, national union and national union conglomerates as a form of labor market cartel, at least for particular industries. Uh, but at the time, uh, both supervisors and independent contractors were cut out from being eligible for unionization. And that has created a conflict for the next 75 years, uh, because we just passed the 75th anniversary of the, the 47 amendments, wherein we're businesses, at least union advocates will claim that businesses are using independent contractors in order to avoid the potential for their workers to be unionized. Um, and, uh, the you've probably heard of the AB5, uh, Assembly sure. Bill 5 out of California. Sure. Uh, from what I understand, that was AFL-CIO written legislation in order to enable the uh, unions to start to unionize gig economy workers. Uh, and then Proposition 22 created a carve-out for transportation-based gig economy workers um, and and like the hundreds or so other professions that had already been given a carve out in other pieces of California state legislation. Um, we, we're getting a little bit into the weeds here, but the point is. No, that's OK, that, because it, I've had um, there's a, a group of freelancers called 
fight for freelancers. Um, mm -hmm. And I've done a couple episodes with them and they are very well versed on this. And, and when the pro act first came up, I kind of saw the thing about, you know, the ABC test in there and kind of blew it off because I was more focused on the union side of it. And then, mm -hmm. Uh, a friend who's a writer started writing about it affects 59 million Americans. I'm like, the more I dug into it, I was like, holy crap, <laughs> this, this has a lot of bad ramifications. And then AB5, I got more familiar with, with the ABC test. And now they're doing a, a uh, backdoor run on it, I think, through the Department of Labor, trying to classify independent contractors. Yes. Uh, the from what I understand of the PRO Act, and, and I think that your uh, Vinny Vernuccio would be obviously, I listened yeah. to your podcast yep. with him, number two on, on your list uh, earlier. Um, he's obviously the, the bigger expert on the PRO Act and has, I'm sure, read the entire thing. I haven't gotten through the entire PRO Act yet. But uh, the, the idea that uh, you have different kinds of worker classification um, and, and different tests for different departments in the government. So the IRS has one test, mm -hmm. the Department of Labor has another test, and the PRO Act doesn't uh, directly try to reclassify uh, workers from independent contractors into employees. But what it says is, I think it's, for fresh my memory, I think it's for NLRB purposes that uh, you it essentially creates a situation where anyone who's an independent contractor, it creates an ABC test, the test that right. says that the B is the most important of that, that if, uh, if the worker is doing something that is core to the business's mission, more or less, uh, that you, they can't be an independent contractor. Right. Uh, so th that is the thing that would that in, in California um, that inspired the fight over AB5 and in Massachusetts, where there's a, a legal struggle going on right now. Again, that if you are a delivery driver, whether you are delivering, uh, you know, fast food or, or, or restaurant food or groceries or if you're delivering people then uh, if you're working for Uber or Postmates or um, Grubhub or what have you, then uh, that is arguably the core mission of that particular enterprise. And as a result, those workers can't be classified as independent contractors. They must be classified as employees. And at that point, the unions can unionize them. And I, I view this as unions' attempt to, um, to find a, a, a life ring uh, to keep them afloat uh, due to their multi-decade decline and they kind of look at independent contractors and the gig economy as the thing that will keep them relevant going into the future. And so that's a problem given that if we're if we're approaching this idea of this issue from the idea of voluntarism, that a a sudden change could lead to a situation where all union all Uber drivers are now unionized and you can't drive for Uber unless you're part of the union. Um, and, and the area that I study in particular of, of labor economics is dynamic labor markets. How can we make labor markets function in a more efficient and effective way so that they are able to respond to changing economic conditions? And that's, that's kind of the, the focus of this new area of research for me is how can we enable 
unions to be adapted for the 21st century because union advocates commonly try to drag current employment standards back to the 1950s or even the 1930s. Um, so I, I, I've rambled on for a while here, but no, that's I'll, all right. So let's stay on this for a second, because I sure. think um, this kind of goes to more philosophical level, which I think kind of tends to, to go in the direction you're going. You have a line in your article um, and I'm, I'm going to take just the back end of this sentence. It says once a special interest group successfully lobbies for government granted privileges, it often faces additional regulations as other officials uh, attempt to restrain the economic power that government has created. And I think so to that end, although you're talking about taxi regulations, but this is, this is the problem that Gompers foresaw back in the 19 teens, that if government gets involved in labor relations, while it may be favorable at one moment, it may be disfavorable at another. The, the pendulum Absolutely. that swings. And that, so we saw that within 35, big time. And I just had this conversation on LinkedIn with a union organizer. Um, so 1935, government got all, you know, gave unions all the privileges and it swung back hard in 47. Right. And, and, and we can dive into how that happened a little bit too, if, if you're interested. So sure. the, you, you have to kind of put yourself in the shoes of, of, politicians and the public in the 1930s, uh, living through the Great Depression, and then the World War II generation coming out of it. The, you're looking at a progressive era uh, government where uh, from 32 to 46, Democrats held control of both houses of Congress and the president. So when they lost control of Congress, and 46. It was not a small deal at all. And arguably a big part, uh, perhaps one of the biggest parts of, uh, of that, uh, that loss of Congress was the massive wave that happened at the end of 1945 and the first part of 1946. Especially after the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, there had been a lot of uh, formal union organizing, different strikes are going on, but then uh, unions and and businesses more or less nice with each other as much as possible, uh, given that uh, strikes came off. And uh, the strikes caused so much social disruption that the Democrats lost both houses of Congress. And uh, the following spring, 1947, uh, the Taft-Hartley Act was passed, which essentially put some pretty heavy chains on unions uh, to prevent them from engaging in the wide-scale social disruption uh, that they had done in terms of, uh, I think, sympathy strikes uh, were, were one of the things that were used, um, where uh, one union strikes uh, in order to get what it wants, and then it calls its, its uh, allies and has all the other unions affiliated with that industry or uh, with uh, that industry's, their businesses, suppliers, strike out of sympathy in order to force uh, negotiations, uh, favorable negotiations uh, by the, the initial business. Um, and so a lot of those things were outlawed in the, the Taft-Hartley Act and of 1947 
And uh, along with that was, were created right-to-work laws that states were allowed to implement uh, laws that said you don't have to join the union, um, as well as forbidding independent contractors and supervisors from being parts of the union. So like unions are still struggling with the chains that were put on them in 47, but the chains were only necessary because unions were given monopoly power over the supply of labor to particular businesses in the National Labor Relations Act. So uh, uh, with, with essentially when you have government privilege, especially monopoly style privilege handed out uh, through economic regulations, often policymakers come back later on and they don't undo those regulations or they don't undo that, that monopoly power, but they impose other regulations that limit uh, the, the ability of those economic actors to engage, to fully use that economic power that they've been granted. So, so is it your belief that there should still be regulations around it or to dismantle the regulations? The way that I would put it is that as long as exclusion, uh, exclusive representation is still active, that the Taft-Hartley Act amendments are important to ensure uh, a lack of, uh, a, a avoid a return to the mid-1940s social strife um, caused by unions wielding outsized economic power. But overall, I'd rather see all of them go away because I argue that there's no reason why independent contractors shouldn't be able to form their own union and engage in their own common representation. Uh, there are probably important, again, some sort of regulations that have to be applied to it to avoid creating a labor market cartel, but we already have antitrust law to avoid uh, the same sort of thing among business enterprises. Um, so we just need to figure out the right way to do that in terms of workers. And if you want to go at this kind of conceptually, you and I, like I could start a taco truck business. You could start a taco truck business. Our, we have economic freedom to do so. We also have the economic freedom to jointly incorporate together to create a enterprise that will start a taco truck business. Uh, I look at workers engaging with each other, incorporating with each other to, for mutual benefit, for representation and the economy, et cetera, no different than I look at entrepreneurs incorporating together to start their own enterprise. So the, well, so what we're talking a little bit about is antitrust regulations, um, which also begets the question, are they necessary with regard to, you know, unions were exempted from Sherman antitrust, but mm -hmm. years and years prior to that, um, they were considered a monopoly and restraint of trade, right? That's mm -hmm. their outlawed for a couple hundred years close to it. Um, so with freelancers, I know there is a freelancers union out there, but I think all they do is shop for benefits. They don't have negotiating power with any specific employer or client. Um, and there's other, I'm sure there's a ton of other associations involving gig workers, freelancers, et cetera. 
the um, I guess the question the question would be my question would be as always has been should the government be involved in anything related to labor relations aside from making sure that people don't shoot themselves on the streets you know back in the 20s mm -hmm. and 30s you see the pictures of the bats and all that stuff and famous picture of of uh, Walter Ruther getting beat up on the bridge outside of I think that's a River Rouge plant at Ford um, but should should the government step back entirely conceptually and then you know if that what service do workers or do unions provide to workers because I think also and this could be some area of research for you so it was mine and I was getting out of college the part of the reason that unions have declined and this is just a small part is the fact that the government has stepped in with all the various laws to protect workers so why do I need to pay a union to represent me when the government does it for free? Absolutely. So the, essentially, we can, one of the things I kind of tied into uh, in that the, the discourse uh, online magazine piece was the fact that there, there used to be uh, fraternal organizations. They, they exist in the, the shadow of their former selves. And, and you think of the, the Eagles or the Elks, um, uh, and, and, and they were mutual aid societies. And they had a very important role in uh, U.S. culture and, and in providing kind of uh, social safety net benefits in an era before government social safety net, government social safety net benefits existed. But as the government started providing more and more benefits themselves, the need for these mutual aid societies decreased. And that's one of the reasons why you hardly see any of them in existence today. Same sort of thing as the government leans into providing more of the benefits that unions used to provide to workers, the use case or the, the value proposition of having a union decreases as well. And so uh, arguably, uh, you could say that unions are a bit of the, a victim of their own success. They had right. wild success in the 1930s and all right, we're, we're going to do great things for workers now. But what they evolved into was a, uh, a political entity who now regards as its primary purpose, it's uh, essentially indefinite uh, existence. So it's one of those problems of once you create a, uh, a government agency to do something. Uh, my, my previous research, as you mentioned, was in uh, taxi regulations. And that's how we got into gig economy research to begin with. And taxi regulations were literally the, the poster book or the dictionary entry version of, of how you have uh, regulations that stifle a market and, and prevent it from evolving uh, to serve uh, future need. Um, you look at New York City and the fact that they issued more taxi medallions that were absolutely necessary, arguably, uh, in the early 1940s, uh, maybe thir late 30s, uh, when taxi medallions were, were first created. But then they didn't increase the number of taxi medallions again until the 1990s and because the taxi special interest groups ensured that they wanted a, a protected market uh, that where they could uh, uh, essentially 
gain a monopoly advantage or, or at least a, a cartelistic advantage by limiting the amount of supply. And so we're kind of in a similar situation where government regulations gave unions so much power that uh, uh, they want to just maintain their status indefinitely. And unfortunately, to some extent, uh, my research showed that the taxi regulators ended up uh, right alongside the taxi special interests because if taxi regulations were relaxed or, or went away altogether, the the reason for existing of the, the taxi regulation bureaus and, and cities across the U.S. would go away as well. So there's a bit of an existential threat to uh, reforming our current regulations. But given recent polling that has uh, showed that, you know, probably about two-thirds of Americans support unions, I think what, what that says is that they support the idea of unions not necessarily unions in their their current incarnation. And so what, what I want to try to do is, is lean into that and say, okay, like there's a lot of support for the idea that that workers need help in terms of bargaining power when they when they go up with with their employer or, or a new employer or what have you. Uh, what are ways that we can improve on our existing uh, world and and the first and biggest is getting rid of the, the monopoly power of exclusive representation that uh, unions were gifted in the NLRA of 1935. So hypothetically we get rid of exclusive representation what does that leave the union left and I think you answered it in your piece and I just want to confirm my reading your piece and what you're considering. So you use the term, um, I think it's platform unions, but basically mm -hmm. the, it seems as though what you're proposing in your piece is that get rid of exclusive representation, let the unions compete and basically become the training ground for the workforce. I think that's, that's kind of it. Um, again, this is, this is very much a blue sky vision. So it, it's mm -hmm. not just become the training ground for the workforce. So uh, it kind of, imp uh, it includes elements from a lot of different pieces. So if you get, first off, if you get rid of exclusive representation, then what that means is simply you can't any, you can't have monopolistic unions anymore. Uh, at that point, you're back to a position where unions must compete for workers. So I want to create a market for unions where they have to compete amongst themselves in order to represent workers. And the way that they do that is they, find things that, that workers want and provide them those services. Uh, right now, unions are tied to a business. And, and we should disambiguate here, like macro level versus micro level. When a union wins uh, the ability, wins a majority vote and is granted the, the monopoly privilege of representing all workers at a bargaining unit, that, that creates a miniature monopoly. I have a, another article uh, forthcoming with uh, my research assistant, Chris Kaiser, uh, discussing uh, this idea in more detail. But they have, they have a miniature monopoly. So unions, national unions, don't have a monopoly over labor. But at the, the local level, uh, at a particular bargaining union, unions have monopoly over labor. If we remove that monopoly, then if you're not happy with the current union that you're part of, then you can join 
another union just as easily. Um, there's a, I'm going to, I'm going to skip over an important thing that so we will have to come back to. So that part, what you just mentioned is against almost all unions rules. That's a, that's a concept called dual unionism and thou shalt not join another union or propose basically supplanting your existing union with another one, replacing it. Of course, no one likes competition. Competition means you have to work harder. And uh, as uh, one, uh, um, the name, I'm blanking on the name right now, but one economist uh, uh, was fond of saying, uh, the best of all uh, aspects of monopoly power is, a, is an easy life. Um, if you don't have to compete, then uh, you are assured of, of safety, uh, of, of economic security. And so, no, no union is going to want to give up monopoly power. But well, it, what, go ahead. It's, it's not just the monopoly power. So if, okay, so this goes to the basics of, of unions. If mm-hmm. I join a union, I've taken an oath of loyalty to that union. I'm bound by the union's constitution and their bylaws, and I've agreed voluntarily, you know, freedom of association mm-hmm. to do that. And among those rules are thou shalt not try to replace us or thou shalt not do something that's grossly disloyal to the union. That And if so, you jumping ship going to another union, that would, irrespective of the employers out there, that would be problematic for the member. When you say problematic, do you mean... They can be put uh, on trial. So so this is one area that, that... you are enlightening me on. Um, I am fascinated with the idea that you can sign away your ability, your freedom of association in such a fashion. So what is stopping a worker from simply saying, I don't want to be part of this union anymore. I tear up my card. They can do that. They can resign. Okay. So So. at that point, they could join a new union though, right? That they're no longer bound by any constitution. Yeah, they just can't do it while they're a member of one or the other. Perfectly fine. I the way so let, let me go big scale and then dive into the, the details. My my conceptualization of the future of unions is as a blend of say Aflac and uh, a bit of Uber and uh, LinkedIn. Okay, so I wasn't expecting so, LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, so so Aflac in the sense of they provide economic and employment insurance of various forms, uh, in particular uh, portable benefits, and this is where it would be most beneficial for independent contractors. As you mentioned, the freelancers union isn't really a union; it is a professional services organization that provides aggregation that allows independent contractors to purchase benefits that would then follow them if they're working for Uber or if they're working for Lyft or, or whoever, right. whoever they, they will go into business for themselves, et cetera. So, and that solves one of the problems that many workers today, both independent contractors and employees face, is that their benefits, especially their healthcare insurance, it's tied to their employer. Arguably, that's a really bad way to do things. And it keeps people at jobs where they're, they're miserable just because their family needs insurance. 
what we should have is unions be the provider or unions or professional agencies that like might be kind of a blend of of um, uh, professional uh, actor or or sports player uh, agencies and unions that that kind of blend in the future that then provides those benefits uh, and also represents a worker to their employer. So that's the that part of it is the LinkedIn part of it. Uh, LinkedIn uh, helps connect you with with employment opportunities. It gets you out there. I think that unions could serve that kind of role as well. When you are out of work, your union should be working hard to find you new opportunities to get uh, started in a new job. They should provide professional training to make sure that you are uh, ready for that new job. And they should represent you before your employer when it comes to salary negotiations or discussions about raises, benefits packages, whatever. And so, go. The, you're the you're rash- somewhat describing unions 110 years ago. Maybe we just need to go back farther than the 1930s. I've been saying that for a couple decades. And the, the last part of it is you, uh, unions, uh, the you, the Uber aspect, and that if you do this with unions, if you make unions compete, then with each other to represent workers then what you have is a uh, what economists call a platform firm or, or that serves a two-sided market. So Uber is one of these, Amazon is one of these in terms of they are a platform that people go to that make connections between buyers and sellers. Amazon sells things of its own, but it also serves as a marketplace that where people can host the things that they sell for uh, uh uh, for customers, eBay might be an even a purer version uh, of a platform firm in that case. But regardless, what a platform firm has to do is it has to please both its uh, the the customers on its marketplace and the uh, providers on its marketplace. And so, at that point, right now, the way that labor market regulations are set up is they they create an acrimonious relationship between unions and their businesses. No business really wants a union, even even progressive left-minded businesses. Like look at Starbucks, like Starbucks is like, yes, we are on board with many progressive causes. And then, you know, their workers are like, we would like to unionize. And Starbucks was like, oh, wait a minute here. That's a bridge too far there. (laughs) Let's rethink this guys. And, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, you know, anyone who wants to organize. I think that, you know, in a lot of cases, for a lot of people, unless you are a type A hard-charging personality, you do not look forward to negotiating with your employer. Most people are not, like, of that kind of temperament. So if they can outsource that professionally to someone else and, and trust that they will get them the best deal, I think that's, that's a great thing. Uh, that's a great service to be provided for employees. Um, but at the same time, the the union right now, the regulations, as I said, kind of create this acrimonious relationship. But in a competitive situation where, you know, union A is competing with union B, both to represent this particular steel plant's workers, but also to engage with steel plant management, they're going to be a little bit more nuanced in terms of how they interact with management because the 
plant's eventual success does translate into the union success because it translates into the worker success. So I think, I think we can get a little bit closer to, I don't think that we should go all the way to industrial sector organizing, like what exists in Germany and most of Europe. But I don't think that we should, uh, I think this gets us a step closer to more cooperation between unions and businesses to the point where businesses no longer see unions as an existential threat. Um, and, and I think that all is predicated on exclusive representation because businesses don't even want to allow minority unions because minority union is a, the camel getting its nose underneath the tent and that minority union might turn into a majority union later on. So um, part of the problem with the cooperative type of model from the factory floor. And I'm, I'm just going to say this from personal experience, as well as having seen it for a long, long time. Uh, this is what killed the Saturn, you know, the GM Saturn stuff is, and there's a bunch of other factors, but one of them was that is a cooperative relationship and your hardcore union people don't necessarily want that. And I'm generalizing here, but sure. when you have a union leader, that's, sitting and cooperating with the employer from the factory floors viewpoint, they're selling us out. They're giving mm -hmm. management a sweetheart deal. You know, they're not fighting for us. So that, mm -hmm. that acrimony has to be kind of built into it for a union leader to step up. Mm -hmm. That was one of the problems with the current, the new leader of the Teamsters, Sean O'Brien, who he got his presidency because the whole James P. Hoffa, you know, which is Hoffa's son, mm -hmm. negotiating at UPS, selling the workers out. And so, you know, along comes Sean O'Brien. He's a fighter. Mm -hmm. And so that, that from the factory floor, the truck driver standpoint, if my union leaders who I'm paying dues to are going to sell me out and I'm not getting as good a deal, look at all the profits they're raking in, that's going to break that apart really quickly. Yes, that, that makes sense. And, and let me clarify this a little bit. So uh, in, a, in a competitive sense, uh, Union A versus Union B at a particular steel plant, uh, the example I used before, if, if Union A isn't doing a hard enough job fighting for the interests of its, of its workers, then workers will want to shift to Union B. And so that com competition necessarily means that there will be the incentive to fight because it should be as easy to change your union allegiance as it is to change your car insurance. You should be able to switch that quickly, that right. easily. And so in that world, unions really still have to, to curry to workers' favor. The point where I'm talking about in terms of them being platform firms and, and needing to negotiate or cooperate a little bit more with, uh, uh, with the businesses themselves is we've seen a hollowing out of the sector of the U.S. or the region of the U.S. economy that was union rich for many, many decades, which is the Rust Belt. Mm -hmm. Where have all of the manufacturing jobs gone? And this is my other area of, of research and, and economic development. They've all moved to the South, where there's right-to-work states, there's low right. labor costs. And so 
the unions, again, union success sowed the seeds of their eventual demise and, or, or at least decline in many of these areas because they made it too costly for the, uh, these businesses to operate with union labor. So like there is a, what it, what it does is it imposes a constraint on how much you can push. And I think that's, that's the important thing. And I think that's the value, at least what they see in Europe, of, of having uh, union representatives on uh, uh, corporate boards and things like that, because like, they understand that like, there is a limit to how much they can push uh, uh, corporations and, and enterprises in terms of being able to, to pull in part of the profits. And so like, what I'm, again, I'm a markets guy. Markets provide an inherent balancing mechanism. And if a union pushes too hard, maybe that union ends up going out of business because it drove its, uh, the, the company that it was working with out of business. But other unions can learn from that approach and, and tailor their own approach a bit better. And, and yes, anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. But no, that, it's things. interesting because so you're an economist basically and, and or studying the markets and I'm looking at more from the streets level, if you will. So it's, it's fascinating to listen to it conceptually versus, you know, what I've seen on the streets. The, um, so part of the going back to the, the blue sky model so your, your conflicts will be on the factory floor with the union leaders if they're seen to be selling out to management. So then they switch to Union B, who's going to make uh, take a more aggressive tone, stronger at the bargaining table, and that brings back the acrimony from the management. So you're still back to that. that but but there, is a there is a natural constraint on how, how hard any union can push because they don't have that monopoly power anymore. That's that's the, the that's why I call exclusive representation the original sin of union labor law and, and union regulations because it create it, everything flows out of that that problem with monopolies uh, and that market power and so um, you know why doesn't why doesn't Walmart you know set its prices sky high. Like Walmart has a tremendous amount of, of market power with suppliers and they, they can push them to keep their costs down, but at a certain point they can't push anymore. Um, and the seller may be just be like, no, i like, literally I can't cost cut on this anymore. And so like, even in the situation where you have a, a massive buyer like Walmart, uh, it is still subject to, reality. That's what I'm trying to get at. It's still subject to economic reality. And when you have a monopoly over the source of, of labor, which is like taking this from a very wonky kind of like abstract econ approach, labor is an input to production. Uh, in the factory floor era, uh, labor is more of a commodity like, like corn or steel uh, than it is today in our, our rapidly growing knowledge economy. And I think that that is actually uh, where we might be able to encourage kind of a grand bargain with pro-union advocates in that unions represent 
what, six and a half percent of the private labor force right now? Yeah, six, six point one of private sector and ten point three, I think, or am I have backwards six point three and ten point one of overall? Yeah. So <laughs> excuse me. So their influence is pretty minor. And it's and it's relegated to very particular states, California, Illinois, New York, New York. Mm-hmm. And, and so what what we essentially are offering is if you accept this bargain of like give up monopoly power, but you can represent far more workers, you can be an indispensable part of the U.S. economy. I think that that might be of interest enough. They're like, all right, we're we're willing to listen to what you're what you have to say, and and this this is actually something that you might be able to help me a, a bit with, um, because I think that there's a a subtle subtle loophole or, or plot hole in in this blue sky vision that I've I've crafted, in that the NLRA, for all of its flaws, does say that once workers achieve a majority vote for a union, you must bargain with that union. Right. With minority unions, a company is not legally obligated to bargain with that union. Like it can if it wants, but if if you and I were to form a union and say like, hey, let's let's go to our employer and say like, rather than, you know, talking to us when it comes time for pay raises, et cetera, uh, we have a representative now, and you know you can work through the representative, and we're happy to work with you. But like this is our agent now. I don't think there's anything currently in labor law that's that says to an employer you must work with a worker's duly appointed representative. Uh, so I think that we may need something in labor law that essentially enshrines a worker's ability to say. This is my representative. You must work with them, but not they only represent me. They only represent the people that uh, that are part of their group. And even if uh, and and they don't have any monopoly power, even if they represent every worker at a workplace, they still don't have any monopoly power in in that sense. Um, so I I think that that would be necessary in order to ensure that that unions are able to negotiate rather than the employer just simply saying, no, I don't, I don't want to deal with your agent. I'm going to deal with you instead. Well, so there's, um, there's two concepts under the national labor relations act. One is, um, the exclusive representation part, majority of employees designate or select, and, you know, by majority votes, a bargaining representative that makes them the exclusive representation uh, representative. However, under Section 7, which is the employee rights portion, employees have the right to um, bargain collectively through representatives of their own choosing. So in theory, even non-union workers can select a co-worker. They can go get an attorney. They can, okay. I saw a case one time with a priest who was being petitioned to be their representative. Um, it doesn't always have to be a union, but in non-union settings, if two or more employees say, hey, Susie over there, I want her to represent us with management. They're engaging in protected activities and that's selecting that's a representative. Right. But it's not the exclusive representative for the whole collective. Mm-hmm. 
So okay, in so theory, you could do that. You could have, quote, minority bargaining in theory mm-hmm. um, without having the whole workforce or the whole unit, bargaining unit, represented. Okay. So so maybe my concern is less of an issue then. My, my but, eventual idea is that unions should be almost like a worker's uh, very own individualized HR team. The, the employer gets HR. And like HR generally tries to work as, as intermediaries and negotiators between the business and workers. But at the end of the day, they are paid by the business. They are agents of the employer. I think it makes sense for workers to say, you know what? We deserve our own HR team. And I think that like the point that I'm like kind of building toward is like this could have a lot. Again, this is very blue sky. I, I realize that I'm, I'm very, being very much a Pollyanna in this situation, but this could have some like long-term, subtle, unexpected benefits. Uh, for example, a lot of people are worried about uh, the potential of a wage gap between women and men, uh, minorities and majorities. And to the extent that the wage gap is a result, not completely, but to the extent that it is the result of a worker not feeling like they have the, the, the bargaining power to really push for their own uh, self-interest. The fact that you can offload that onto an HR person and that HR person then goes to bat for you. I think that that could, could a lot of people would be interested in that. I think that could solve what some people could consider to be a major social problem. So let me, let me take this back a little bit because I, sure. I it, it sounds like foundationally um, there's some holes in the argument. Okay, and, tell me where and, I'm wrong. So, well, and I've struggled with this for many, many years because my, I mentioned my graduating paper in college was the decline of unions, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that's kind of what tipped me the other way. I'd love to read that, by the way. Um, I've got to find it as it was 30 years ago, but, <laughs> but it, was, it was really, it was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And that's when I said, I'm done on that side of it. Um, but there is a role for unions. So there's the whole argument between trade unionism and industrial unionism. So the mm-hmm. AFL back in you know the 1930s was craft-based trade unionism, where they basically were voluntary association, carpenters, electricians back then. I don't know if they're around IBW, but um, plumbers, you know, the crafts. And and even before that, you know, Gompers was a cigar maker president of the Cigar Makers Union. So it was a, a honing of the craft, teaching people the craft, keeping it somewhat monopolistic, but then selling their wares to, almost like guild unionism way back when, selling their wares to the merchants. And then the Industrial Revolution, then the 1930s, and then you had the CIO break off from the AFL, which is you know was the Committee of Industrial Organizations, became the Congress of Right, so there's that 20-year competition, which also helped strengthen the union movements. They're all fighting for the same classes of workers groups, but with the decline of industrialization, which I meant I meant to mention this earlier. If you haven't mm-hmm. looked at the 1959 Great Steel Strike, which was the okay. decline of the steel industry in the United States, 600,000 steel workers out on strike, six months. I want to say six months. Um, finally, got settled by. Was it Truman, 1959? It might have been Eisenhower. I don't remember. I think it's Truman. But anyway, 
that was the beginning of the end for the steel industry here in the United States, because that's when you started seeing the steel imports coming in. So, and of course that was monopoly bargaining nationwide steel workers strike. Um, however, there, I think there's an argument to be made kind of to your end of what services unions could provide. Yes. You know, kind of like the Aflac side of things, but also, and they started going down this road back in 2005 and then it stopped, which was the breakup of the AFL-CIO with change to win federation. That was the Teamsters, SEIU, et cetera. Um, they need to go back to training the workers, making them the market for the workers. Mm-hmm. Whether And so today, it's not just a knowledge-based economy. It's, we still have a lot of like, low-skilled workers, low-wage workers, hotel workers, you know, restaurant employees, things like that, where if you become like the, um, for lack of a better term, a, like a, the culinary school for the cooks, mm-hmm. you know, the, I think the culinary union, which is Unite Here out in Vegas, does something like this where they, they basically supply the workers, they train them, mm-hmm. they have training centers, the employers pay for the training centers, and they know they're getting quality employees. Yes, yes. That and is- on, the, on the flip side, and this is part of the problem with unions, and I can tell you as a former union rep, you wind up spending all the members' dues that are paying you for the bottom 4, 5, 10% of the workers who don't deserve to work anyway because they show up late and all that. So unions have kind of, in that sense, and it's not necessarily that they became lazy. They just, you know, they don't want to get charged with failure to represent workers so they take these grievances up to management that shouldn't be there anyway. And they wind up protecting the lazy ones. So yeah. if they if they become, the, and I'm looking at this from a market perspective of what makes unions more attractive to employers to lessen the amount of resistance that they meet. Mm-hmm. So if you have a, a model where Teamsters are training truck drivers, you know, um, nursing unions are training nurses, you know, they're the nursing schools and they put out the best in the marketplace, it'll be more attractive for the employers to hire. Yes, and, and I didn't mention this earlier, but that is exactly part of my idea behind the, the two-sided market approach that uh, they may still, and, and, and so it will be in unions' complete best interest in a competitive environment to, to provide the highest quality workers. Right now, under a monopolistic environment, they may have an incentive, but it isn't reinforced with bad consequences if they don't provide the best quality workers. So uh, the, the better quality workers that a union, competitive union can provide, we're talking A and B, if A can provide higher quality workers than B, then the business is going to be willing to give better terms to A's workers as opposed to B's workers. And so you have a, a, a market pressure, uh, mutually reinforcing cycle of improving uh, uh, economic output uh, by making sure that people are trained up to the highest level that they are currently ready to, uh, to perform at. Uh, and then at the same time, it also creates incentive for that bottom three or 4% that you mentioned of I, I can't ride, like unions talk about free riders in the case of right to work law. So, well, mm-hmm. they're paying, the, they're getting representation, but they aren't, they aren't paying dues. 
The real free riders are those bottom three to four percent who are using their union affiliation in order to not perform, and they're dragging everybody else down at the same time. And and that kind of thing is exceptionally toxic uh, to a workplace. Uh, once you see mm-hmm. other people like you know cutting off early or or, or not working very hard. Uh, what there's an absolute motivation to say, well, well, screw it. What, what's it? We all get paid the same amount. Why am I working hard like a sucker? And so you want to look at like the way that unions have declined and the industries that have typically employed unionized labor have declined. I think you have to look at that kind of incentive non-compatibility of the of the structure. Uh, is kind of a, I guess you'd call it almost like an industrial organizational structure um, of, uh, of that leads to lower and lower performance over time. Um, and there's a fascinating book by uh, Truman Bewley um, called Why Wages Don't Fall During a Recession. And, and economists have a flaw, well, we have many flaws, but they had a flaw of, of you know, treating workers like a commodity, like I kind of mentioned earlier. And, and for better or for worse, the lower skilled the job, more typically the more commodified that kind of employment situation is going to be. However, workers aren't commodities. I know economists listening to this might be surprised to hear so, but the important thing about commodities is they're their quality doesn't change depending on how you treat them. So a, you know, a bushel of wheat of, of a given character is, is, is the same as a bushel of wheat of another character from somewhere around the world. A, a piece of steel of a given grade provides the same strength as another piece of steel of, an, of the same grade from somewhere else. They don't change their effectiveness uh, or, or their ability to, to satisfy needs, depending on how you treat them. But a worker will absolutely, workers can choose their level of effort every single day. And so what Buley's book shows through amazing amount of interviews with employers is the reason why, work, why businesses don't drop wages don't decrease wages during a recession and instead they lay people off it's because decreasing wages has such a substantial uh, uh, harmful effect on morale that it reduces output and that layoffs reduce output but it's a short-term uh, uh, morale effect and and also t- probably it, it scares people into working even harder than they would have otherwise so uh, this is all to say that the morale of workers really matters in terms of, of how effective and productive they are. And the current setup that unions have doesn't lead to a, a, a beneficial cycle of ever-increasing productivity. It might lead to the exact opposite. And, and I'm not saying that that unions are not productive. I'm I'm not a, I'm not a union basher. I think everybody should be able to be part of a union. I think that we should just restructure things so that they are more supportive than they currently are, 
because of the government regulations that have been created. So um, there's several points I would disagree with. And the, the first of which, and this is just, there's the whole Adam Smith land, labor, and capital, right? Sure. And the unions, I'm going back more than 100 years, used to argue labor is not a commodity. Labor is not a commodity. I've never agreed with that statement because as a worker, you know, I literally started washing dishes at a Chinese restaurant when I was a teenager, like 12 or 13, and then kind of just worked, you know, to factory, et cetera, did construction. My commodity is my labor. My ability to, if I've got nothing else to sell, I don't have a lot of capital, I don't have land, my commodity is what I can sell, and that selling is my labor. Mm-hmm. Now, there may, be, there may be variances in the productivity within that labor. Some people work harder, some people work you know, less hard. Um, however, that's what a person has to sell from a physical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Same thing with with knowledge-based workers. They're selling the knowledge in their brain. That's their commodity, so to speak. But when, so part of what I guess the argument would have to be is, do you just wipe everything out and start with a clean slate? And then in addition to that, if we're talking labor, and I'm talking more skilled or unskilled labor, but physical labor, Mm -hmm. that also gets into immigration um, because a part of the problem has been for, for the, since the dawn of time is, you know, I'm trying to set my wage at a fairly decent wage and along comes Joe Smith from, you know, across the Atlantic or from down south of the border and they replace me mm-hmm. and employers are always looking for cheaper labor. Right. This it's is true. That's part of capitalism. So and we're always, all of us always looking for, a lower cost way of satisfying our needs. A better deal, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so that, and this has been a problem with for unions since the dawn of time. You know, it's the cheap labor coming in. Hell, it was the the slave trade for sure you know, fifty years or one hundred and fifty years. Um, but so, how do you how do you rectify the fact that if I'm a hotel maid? or a factory worker or a carpenter or a roofer that there's somebody coming in from overseas across the border, whatever that can replace me Mm -hmm. because I don't have a lot of skill unless I'm very skilled, which gets to the productivity and what unions could be doing to train truck drivers, to train nurses, to train carpenters, whatever. And And that always leads me back to the trade model. I, uh, I think that the the trade approach is the right approach. I completely agree with that. Um, I need to study more of the way that labor unions work in uh, Las Vegas because it seems to me that it, it might actually might actually halfway work there from the little bit that I've heard. And, and I mentioned that because I was I was at a uh, econ conference in Vegas uh, last April, and uh, I. Everybody's doing their best in this kind of uh, crazy economic world that we're living in, uh, especially coming out of the pandemic. But there were definitely a few difficulties that existed uh, with the room that I had. And and I I heard other people saying similar things, uh, like there was a giant wad of hair in the shower that wasn't cleaned up. And you would think that that would be noticed and dealt with. 
And so this is where I say that like labor isn't a commodity and that the same person working under different conditions can produce very different outputs and, and outputs in terms of not just quantity, but quality. The, the same housekeeper can clean, you know, 10 rooms, but if, uh, if that person is under uh, a lot of stress, they may miss some things. Uh, they may not be putting all of their effort into it. Um, you mentioned truck driving. Uh, truck drivers, yes, you can have the same truck driver driving the same distance and get the load there safely, but he can drive well in terms of like, you know, uh, not running other cars off of the road, or he can not drive well. And so there, there's, a, there's a skill component of it that, that goes to what you were talking about uh, with uh, trades and, and greater training that that uh, offers. Um, but there's also just a, uh, a matter of like, if you don't like your employer, if you're upset with your boss, there are ways that you can uh, shirk and still manage to like do enough to avoid getting in trouble. Uh, and so I, I, at a, another yeah, place used, that we used to ahead. call it work to rule. Okay. Work, you work, uh, you basically work essentially to the exact rules that are in the schematics of your machine. And mm -hmm. obviously you're not going to use the shortcuts that makes you more productive that you wouldn't do normally. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and some, so that's why I say that I don't view labor as a commodity. It, it is kind of, it is more of a commodity when you are, you know, pressing a button on a machine to, uh, to compress a piece of steel into a particular format so that it can slide along the conveyor belt to somebody else who's going to press another button and, and do that sort of thing. But there's fewer and fewer of those kind of jobs available in the world. Um, and, and that's a good thing because those were good jobs. Um, and and the, even in the case of knowledge workers, like you can you can do the bare minimum, or you can you can find ways to Im improve uh, upon your quality, upon your impact, uh, upon the new ideas that you're bringing to your company to make your company more effective. Um, what's that? The Frito Lay story of uh, the the fellow who I think that there was some controversy over it, but the guy who supposedly came up with fla flaming Cheetos was. Okay, I don't, I don't need them, so I, I don't know. Oh, I haven't heard that. I, same, but apparently there's a the they trotted out kind of like this big publicity campaign of it was a lower tier worker in one of their factories that came up with the idea of flaming Cheetos, and like it became the company's biggest product uh, to this date. Um, like, if you're not happy in your job, you're like, why should I work harder to kind of think of good things for my company? Uh, I wonder so, if you got rewarded for that. Um, uh, like I said, there was some controversy over <laughs> w whether he actually did it or whether somebody else did it. Um, I believe that at some point he at least like got uh, recognized for it. I think that the company might have said, like, even if this isn't exactly the way that it happened, this is a good PR story and we can run with this. Right. Um, so anyway, tangent. Um so yeah, labor is, is a commodity. I understand the at its basic level, it is. But the way it's applied, it becomes less of a commodity. 
Um, and I, I forget the, the rest of what you were saying, but the, uh, my, I, I think that, that essentially if we create the opportunity for competition between unions, then we give them the incentive to, to train their workers more like what you're describing happens uh, in Las Vegas, that essentially the unions provide a, a well-trained uh, core of workers uh, for the businesses that they're providing services to. And if you're doing that, uh, if, if you uh, train housekeepers so that they can clean 12 rooms in an hour as opposed to 10, then you're going to uh, and give them the shortcuts and, and all that sort of thing that, that needs then I think that um, that we're, we're creating a kind of virtuous circle of of improving people's lives. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the other thing you mentioned was immigration. So, being labor economists, I can talk a little bit about immigration, um, and that it's kind of fascinating. It's very understandable that unions uh, representing domestic workers' interests would be very concerned about the idea of external competition. Like you're flooding our market and you're making it harder for us to actually, uh, uh, you know, work in our, our, our workers' best interest. You're, you're diluting our economic power. They used to be. They're not so much anymore. Now they're, yeah, they switched and I want to say it was 99, 2000 where they went to, Go ahead and let immigrants in. They just want to figure out ways to unionize them. Absolutely. But so that, that doesn't help. That doesn't help the carpenter who you know now at the union hall they've got five hundred people instead of fifty, and and so they don't have as much. They've got more competition within the union. It's still it's still an economic problem for them. So the, what I would say is you would think so. Um, there's, there's, there's two sides to this story, a sociological side and an economic side. The broad finding of economic research with regard to immigration is that immigration doesn't actually reduce economic opportunity for domestic workers. Uh, that it, what it does is it advances long-term economic growth because what you have is more uh, of the inputs that an economy needs to be productive. And so by that very nature, you're going to increase economic output. Okay, that, that's fine. GDP, that's great. But like, I need to feed my family. I need to not face too much competition. But what generally happens is that the immigrant workers coming into the situation, they don't have the exact same skill set as domestic workers. So this, again, is the question of, like, is labor a commodity? And if all you're doing is pressing a button on a steel press, then, or you're, you're just swinging a scythe in, an, in a farm field, then, sure, at that situation, it, it is a commodity. But uh, you have to look at it more deeply in terms of you and I being domestically born, I, I assume for yourself, uh, and, uh, and domestically, uh, and English being our, our native tongue, have better communication skills than most immigrants who are coming in to the U.S. In particular, most of the lesser skilled immigrants are coming into the U.S. that a lot of unions might be concerned with that they would be uh, competitors to labor supply. And so what happens in that situation is what economists call comparative advantage. So 
the findings of research is that domestic-born workers tend to shift into positions of management or positions where their communication skills are more, val more valuable and the incoming immigrant workers shift into areas where their kind of more commodity style, uh, pure labor input is valuable. So the economy overall expands. Um, and, not, and, and it's not just the economy overall expands, but there are more opportunities for domestic workers than there were previous because of that economic expansion. The, I, and I know that this is like really hard for anybody who is not like an econ wonk to like, like really, this just, this violates, this is counterintuitive. But like, if you look at the numbers, if you do the, the actual uh, empirical research with the best data that we have, at its worst, uh, high school dropouts, so not, and, and high school graduates to some extent, but high school dropouts are the ones who are affected the most by uh, increased immigration. And even then, the negative impact on their income is very short-lived, a year or two. And the broader value to high school workers, uh, more than high school workers, uh, aggregate output, uh, their, uh, and therefore their income opportunities is much larger. So the, the harm that the immigration does is concentrated to the least skilled workers in the U.S., and it's very temporary. And the long-run benefits of immigration are substantially faster economic growth that creates more opportunities down the road, even for those workers that were harmed initially. Uh, so, uh, I, I would, yeah. so I, I would understand that at the macro level, mm -hmm. you know, however, I could also, I'm going to take the opposite position for a moment and bear in mind, I, and this kind of goes into a whole different discussion about immigration and the demographic shifts that are taking place where we've got a bunch of baby boomers retiring. We need to have immigration. Um, and we're, it's, and we're it's seeing it get real dicey if we don't, well, we're seeing the effects of it right now. Yeah. You know, we we've got high wage inflation right now. So that's, you know, it's kind of clear that we need more workers in the economy. So I'm not arguing against immigration, but I'll mm -hmm. just take the opposite position for a second that sure. when you're, when you're a construction worker in a construction trade, and let's say I'm a carpenter, and all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of people coming in who can basically pound nails just as good as I can, or they can learn to weld within a very short period of time, you mm -hmm. have a greater supply and your demand shrinks mm -hmm. for your particular skills, and that drives down the wages. So and, go, go ahead, but bookmark that right there. Go ahead. Well, and, it, and there's municipalities, states throughout the country where we have seen union membership shrinking and particularly like the construction trades because those quote low wage workers mm -hmm. whether they're non-union american born workers or just you know the unions no longer have a monopoly in so many different areas automotive for example you've got you know uh, the big three or now that just the detroit three because 
they're no longer the biggest anymore. And all these foreign-owned auto companies coming in, non-union labor down in the South, you know, that are basically taking the market share from the union companies, the big three, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and part of this, and that goes into a whole thing about trade and free markets. And, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm taking the other side because I know the other side and I know the arguments and I'm, so, and I struggle with this because is there still a place for unions? And I still come back to this, the place for unions is you've got to have a faster, better, more dynamic workforce than the non-union. I, th- I think that's absolutely true. Um, to to address that that bookmark uh, that I, I mentioned, it, so the thing that most people forget, and, and even to some cases economists forget um, uh, when they're talking about this, I should have mentioned it firsthand. <clears throat> Every immigrant is not only a source of labor, they are also a consumer. It's true. So, as a result, when you said that demand shrinks, actually demand goes the other direction. Every new immigrant has to have a place to live, has to buy groceries, has to participate in our broader economy in all the many ways that that we participate. So, you could think of this as, would you rather, and you mentioned trade, would you rather have and, and, and why, why did steel trade move overseas after the, the 1959 strikes uh, that you mentioned that, that, that opened the door for that? Well, because it's cheaper to produce steel overseas in general, or at least certain types of steel, than it is for uh, uh, domestic production. Well, but if we're sending our money over there, then the people that might have immigrated to the U.S. are spending it over there. They're improving the economy of that other place. Why not just bring them over here and the same thing might happen, but then we have the situation of they're growing our own economy at the same time. So in terms of uh, that carpenter who, who looks at, you know, immigrants coming in who after, you know, carpenters, that's like... I've, I've done a little bit of work on my mom's house, and I know how much of a trade, how much skill and training goes into carpentry. So, mm-hmm. like, you have to say that, like, okay, no, uh, someone can't just pick up a hammer and immediately start being as productive, even in six months, as uh, a well-skilled right. I, carpenter. I'm exaggerating with that. Sure, sure. But, like, like, there's definitely a concern there. But what's more, what the research says is more likely to happen is that the immigrant uh, carpenters are likely to be overseen by domestic-born carpenters as they engage in their work. And so essentially, management roles open up for someone who might have stayed, you know, a, a, you know, just a framer his entire career or most of his career. He's able to access and, and move up into higher-paid roles more quickly and at the same time, these incoming immigrants, they need a place to live. So it drives up the demand for the, the same kind of services that the carpenter would provide. So it, it's, it's, it's very counterintuitive in some ways. But like the more you go into it, you're like, no, really, like if all like just think about this for a moment. What if all the workers were in the United, worldwide were in the United States? Well, then all of the 
world economy would be in the U.S. That would generally be better than having the U.S. only responsible for, what, about half, a third of the global economy? I can't remember where we're at now. Um, but the point is that uh, there are, there's other things. It's the, the situation is much deeper than just there is somebody that is now supplying a similar amount of labor. They are, they are able to supply that labor, but the other effects that they bring along with them might actually are actually likely to improve my economic outcomes over time. Um, that may require some additional training. That may require, in some cases, changing careers. But if unions shift, like going back to that blue sky vision, to kind of uh, a trade approach where they, they improve workers' lot by offering them the kind of training and services that get them to the next level, unions won't have a, an incentive to keep a worker like in their, in, in their pigeonhole their entire career. They want to see that person move up and advance and improve because that improves the generally probably the dues that the union may receive uh, from that worker. And so, like, again, just shifting to a more competitive uh, approach uh, gets the best out of everyone. Um, you know, people, people listening to this podcast could be listening to a different podcast. Don't turn it off. We're not done yet. <laughs> but so, like, the fact that there's competition makes you and I try to perform at a better level than if we knew that we were the only podcast in town. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm taking the opposite position because I've, mm -hmm. I've, I know the arguments back and forth and I, I'm, because I want to make sure it's again, knowing that we need immigrants and we need, especially right now, because we're so short of workers, mm -hmm. we need to figure out how to fix the, the system. Um, but realizing that once that labor pool fills up, mm -hmm. that there's less competition Right. Mm -hmm. And it, you've got actually, I should reverse that It's greater competition because you've got more people in the pool and less market power for the original right. people who are in it. Um, so this is this is why uh, my own research with Leah uh, that I mentioned earlier uh, focuses on dynamic labor mm -hmm. markets, because maybe you shouldn't be a carpenter your entire life. Like you started out washing dishes. Mm -hmm. You didn't stay washing dishes. I started out as, as a lifeguard. Um, like if you and I were still in that job, that wouldn't be, a, that wouldn't be good for us. It wouldn't be good for the overall economy. Uh, people continue to improve and grow, uh, in, in them and their ability to, in their ability to manage others and their ability to manage themselves. Uh, what, what millennials call adulting. Um, and so, right. <laughs> So you, you want to see, like, it's understandable that at a certain point someone says, you know what, I'm not interested in climbing any farther. I'm, I'm pretty good where I am. And, and that, like I said, that's understandable. But we want to make sure that a person gets as far as they could go otherwise. And if after, you know, 10 years, uh, you say, you know what, um, I'm kind of done with this. I'm, I'm ready for, for the next stage in my career there should be an opportunity to move up at, even at that point. Uh, and I think that that is, that is something that unions could become. 
Uh, and it, it requires us, it does require something from, from us, and that is to accept that, you know, security is not assured. And, and the attempts to contrive economic security actually lead to economic stagnation. That's why we study dynamic labor markets and how to revise policy to encourage labor market dynamism. Because really, at the end of the day, the only security is the ability to adapt. Well, and the stagnation leads to economic insecurity because it destroys your market. Exactly. Yes. Look at Detroit. Detroit in the 1950s was one of the wonders of the world, was one of the biggest cities in the U.S., was envied around the world. They declared bankruptcy. Right. In what, 2008, 2009? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, Somewhere in the mid-2000s. And it was like, how on earth... Did that happen? Well, I, the short <laughs> version is we introduced global trade to the mar- uh, the automotive market, you know, and that came from the gas prices in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we had, you know, uh, what was Nissan's predecessor? Uh, Datsun. Datsun okay. started coming around, and then Nissan, and then Toyota, and Hondas, you know, and they're, they were not stagnant. They were moving forward, and, and Detroit got stagnant. And, and that's exactly, that's one of the reasons why we, we stuttered, studied taxi regulations in Uber uh, about t- uh, seven, eight years ago, was, uh, you know, taxis were a perfect example of an industry that was frozen in time that was ripe for disruption. And, and when the disruption comes, it causes a lot of chaos. It's much better to adapt gradually than all at once. Yeah, and thus Uber. Let me ask you, how much time do you have? Because I, I'm literally, I don't have a flight for another 14 hours from now, so I can talk <laughs> about this all night. But I know you said you're you're visiting your folks and if mom's cooking dinner, so I don't want to interrupt uh, dinner. I, I am good to keep going if, if you're good. To yeah, keep no, chatting. I'm fine. It's um, but I, So I've been fascinated with this for several decades now, so it's that's why it's kind of interesting to have these conversations. The... Um, so let me go back. It sounds like we need to start the the slate clean. Almost, unions need to reinvent themselves, um, which I don't. And personally, I don't see that happening. Um, they're moving more towards compulsion versus voluntary organizations, and hey, uh, using government ahead. power to do it. Yes, absolutely. Um, because that's that's the only way that you can come. Uh, you know, and compel someone. Uh, to do something uh, other than outright force. Uh, so, yes, um, I think that we do need, go, need to go back and wipe the slate clean. Uh, I think I need to go back and study some gompers from what you've told me. Uh, and I think that, I think that unions, I, at least I have a perhaps naive hope, given what I have read union advocates articulating over the last few years, especially in advance of the Janus decision, that maybe maybe this ex- exclusive representation is kind of a millstone that like was good for us in the beginning, but like it quickly is is dragging us down. There and, was there was a uh, move about ten years ago towards well, I shouldn't say it was a move. There's a bunch of academics got together, wrote a pretty large paper about minority unions. Mm-hmm. 
And as fast as it popped up, it's almost gone away. Mm -hmm. And, and again, we're moving in the opposite direction. There's, I don't know if you know about the local laws going on around the country. You mentioned AB5 earlier, but um, New York, for example, New York City just enacted a just cause law for mm -hmm. uh, fast food workers. So in, a, in other words, you can't be fired without just cause in a fast food restaurant. The problem for a union with this, and this is kind of an issue that I've raised a couple of times, is the reliance on government to do things that unions used to fight for becomes an existential threat to the union business model. So if I'm a worker and I can't get fired for without reason or without cause, and I just go to the government agency, which is I think the Human Rights Commission in New York City, who's my taxes are paying for, by the way, why do I need a union? The fight yeah. for 15 model, which was the SEIU trying to unionize the fast food industry raise by going out and raising the minimum wage up to $15 an hour, which was all about unionizing fast food workers. They never, they spent over a hundred million dollars. And so, yes, they've enacted minimum wage laws, but they don't have a single bargaining unit to show for it. Yeah. And that, and that was the fight for 15. So then now they're over at Starbucks. So the, there, there is the, the ancillary benefit. So they may not be, unionizing more workers, but I'm sure that uh, you have, you're more familiar than I am with the fa union contracts and how they'll build in clauses to the contract that once the minimum wage goes up, this triggers an automatic wage increase for our workers as well. So that there have, uh, I, at least I've heard of that. I haven't actually read any union contracts. Are you familiar yeah, with that? It, it's, it's in there in a few, but it's not the majority of union contracts. Okay. Uh, so yeah, uh, you, it's, it's the same sort of thing that I mentioned, uh, previously about how, uh, the fight for greater worker benefits is leading to, uh, government policy and government in general crowding out the, the product that unions provided. Mm -hmm. And so I, again, it's, we have, we have some odd situations where around two-thirds of the U.S., and, and this has been a two-thirds of the U.S. Uh, support unions or support the idea of the unions, idea. at least, when, when they're asked in polls. Uh, and, and this has gotten a lot of media play recently, but if you actually look at the numbers, they haven't really changed that much. Like, it's pretty consistent that it's a, a majority of people support the idea of unions and generally a supermajority, 60% or more. So in that light, like, I, I think people are trying to say, like, unions are having their moment. You know, we had Striketober last year and, and you know, uh, Starbucks uh, employees are, are looking at unionizing and, like, it, it's happening. It's happening. And I, I kind of don't think so. Like, we've seen a massive decline, a steady decline of union relevance since the mid-1950s. And, and that is in, against the backdrop of unions, uh, high support for unions, at least the idea of unions. So as, as more and more happens, like what we're talking about, where government would uh, uh, crowd out the services that unions provide, their value proposition, they have to get tied more and more into government in order to survive. 
And I, I suspect that what they might end up, and, and we're seeing more and more states shift to a right-to-work approach. I'm not saying that that's going to happen to New York or California or Illinois anytime soon, but uh, like West Virginia just became a right-to-work state. I honestly would think that maybe Ohio would be moving in that direction in the not too near future because West Virginia just got a new new core plant right on the Ohio River, right across the border from Ohio. And I highly suspect this is one of the areas that I studied this earlier this year. I highly suspect that a big part of that rationalization of locating it where it is, is because West Virginia was right to work and Ohio was not. So as the pressure continues to build on unions, like there may be some, some momentary victories that, and, and from the perspective of union advocates. But I get the sense that their options are going to keep dwindling and that this is what I'm trying to create is something that offers a bargain between people that want non-compulsory unionization and the people that want unions to remain a thing going into the future. And I think that it may find we may finally reach a point where everybody's ready to, to shake hands on this. Might not be for 10 or 20 years, but that's my hope. Maybe, yeah, I, maybe I, I'm I, being too optimistic. I, I think it's going to take a long, long time because it's such an entrenched business model for them. And although it's shrinking, it's shrinking on the one side, it's growing on the public sector unionism side. Um, and it's become that they're wholly reliant on government. It's almost mm -hmm. corporate welfare. You've got union welfare. That's and, exactly true. And that's the other subject that I study. <laughs> well, and, it's, and they, can't, they can't quite wean themselves of that. I, I saw recently, um, and this is going to just an instance, but uh, Sean O'Brien, who's head of the Teamsters, Teamsters just negotiated a deal with Yellow Freight or, or YRC, I think. Um, they're basically trained because there's a shortage of truck drivers, right? So they're doing the mm -hmm. training model. The mistake I think they're making is they're having yellow pay for it. And mm. as opposed to the Teamsters paying for it, and then they can spread their better drivers throughout the system or throughout the country. But it's, it's one of those, again, back to the training model mm -hmm. side of it. Um, yeah, I, it's going to be fascinating. I, I think along your lines on this, I think this may be a blip on the radar, this, this little uprising that we have going mm -hmm. on it's definitely being driven by gen z um mm. we're seeing a little bit of activity in you know traditional workforces but the the headlines are all you know amazon starbucks interesting thing with amazon is that union which is the amazon labor union that won the election in staten island is an independent union so it's not affiliated with the big structure and there's this push now that they go like I just heard Derek Smalls at the Labor Notes conference, saw the video of him speaking, where he was talking about, you know, stay independent. Mm -hmm. So that, that too, is, is existential for the business unionism side of it, you know, the big structures. So Absolutely. if you've got a bunch of little independents out there forming their own, they don't get the revenues up to the AFL-CIO, for example, or the yes. Teamsters. So. The and and that that assumes that they wouldn't uh, reorganize or, or um, uh, affiliate affiliate uh, yeah. later on, 
but no, and I remember, I think it was, uh, I think it was a really good NPR podcast that I was listening to on the uh, Amazon uh, unionization story. And the, the organizer said, like, I tried to engage the traditional unions and they right. kind of were like, it kind of blew me off. And so like, I, I had to go on a, a one man show with this or, 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 yeah. or small group Chris, show. Yes. Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer, uh, I guess they traveled down to the Bessemer, Alabama warehouse to talk to the organizers at RWDSU and they just kind of blew them off. And so now they're, yeah. you know, did their own thing and they're successful at it. Um, mm-hmm. There's still, you know, question whether or not the actual election is going to stick, but the, you know, they had, I think is roughly 3000 employees out of eight voted to unionize, but 3000 didn't, you, you know, didn't vote at all. So mm-hmm. it was like 3000 to 2000 or, you know, some numbers in between. And so they, they technically, you know, a majority of the workers at that Amazon workplace didn't vote to unionize. Now, a lot of them okay. just didn't vote at all. So they, they only had, I want to say it's like 3,400 or somewhere in there in terms of the actual numbers, but you know, out of 8,000 people, they're going to have a hard slog to try to get a contract if they get the election certified. But. And, and it's kind of a fascinating thing because the turnover at Amazon fulfillment right. centers like this is so enormous that yep. uh, you could very quickly end up with a situation where, you know, five years down the road, barely anybody that voted in favor of the union is actually still working at that site. Um, and oh, so... I- I'm currently in a state now that the vast majority of the grocery stores are unionized, but they've been unionized since the 1950s and 60s. I don't mm-hmm. think there's anybody alive that voted to unionize in those stores, but they're still <laughs> unionized. So. That's one of those areas that I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm new to this research area, but it feels like unions are a little bit vulnerable to the idea that, you know what? No, you can't have a single election decades ago and still be like, this is just a, you, you need to recertify every five years or something like that. And if, if it feels like that is a policy that would have enough legs, like the unions obviously would completely oppose it, but it feels like that would have enough popular support that like it might get passed. And, and I, I feel like, you know, those who are anti-union are going to, the, the pro-union advocates are going to keep pushing for their own, you know, attempts at compulsory unionization, but the anti-union advocates are out there as well. And they're going to keep trying to, you know, push unions back in every way they can. And, and just over the long arc of, of the last 75 years or so, it feels like the, the anti-union movement is winning more than it's losing. So that's why I'm trying to think like, you know, that we might end up with a situation where, unions as they were installed in the 1930s simply aren't really a thing anymore and they're willing to make a deal and but like at that point i don't want unions to go away altogether because i i think that workplace representation uh i think that the the social benefits that unions can offer in terms of of going back and and providing portable benefits and and uh workplace training and, and things like that, that uh, some of the friendly societies uh, that 
were part of the fraternal organizations like the Elks and, and such from back in the day. Like, if we could position unions to resume that role and, 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 and say, like, look, you could, you could have the entire market of workers, not just 10%. I feel like there's a certain point where they're facing enough pressure that they might be open to that approach. Because again, look, look at, go back to the idea of, of taxi cartels. Taxi cartels fought and fought and fought uh, to avoid Uber. And Uber did some end arounds because most taxi regulations were at the city level, not at the state level. But because cities and municipal governments legally are creations of the state, states can preempt local regulations and local laws. So Uber and Lyft and the other ride-sharing companies were able to go to states and preempt local regulations and allow them to work in the states. Uh, Washington, Washington State just did that. Mm-hmm. There's uh, Teamsters and, and Uber, and well, maybe Lyft as well. They basically came together, came up with a plan, got it passed through the legislature. Yeah, and so they, they did it legislatively, what took a ballot measure, a very expensive ballot measure for everybody involved in California. And so that, that legislation that just passed in Washington is essentially the same thing that was on the ballot and successfully passed in California. And the local unions were like, yeah, this, this improves, you know, the lot of our, of our members. Like this, this is a good thing. We're willing to work with them on this. National unions were not happy about it at all. And so, like, again, like, the, there's a lot of little ways that it just seems to me that, that unions are kind of, like, losing their grip. And, and the PRO Act, rather than uh, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, that would undo most of the Taft-Hartley uh, Act and the 1947 amendments, the National Labor Relations Act, it seems to me to be more of a, a signal of desperation than coming from a position of strength. Because in a position of strength, you wouldn't need the PRO Act. They're trying to, to, to turn back the clock. Um, and and I, I just don't think that it's going to work for them very well politically uh, as you like think of what the, the makeup of Congress is going to be over the, the, the coming decades. Uh, and, and so I, I just kind of sense that like, there eventually is going to be a point where everybody's willing to sit down and talk because if they don't like the taxis, they're just going to fade into to non-existence. And, and the, the trick of it is again, like Uber working with the local unions, Uber, and I keep mentioning Uber, Uber is the, the umbrella term. It's the Kleenex for all of the gig economy firms right. to some extent, but, uh, uh, Uber and Lyft and, and the coalition of gig economy firms worked with unions in Washington to pass that that legislation. The um, you could see what you're seeing now with taxis in New York City is that Uber is now going to list taxis on its app. Taxis like we're like we're just crushed here, even though New York City put. Uh, uh, stipulations into place to try to protect taxis from Uber, uh, it finally got to the point where the two were able to come together and say, all right, let's, we're, we're willing to cooperate. 
And so now you can order a taxi on Uber's app in New York City. Washington State provides an example of how the gig economy can work with, uh, uh, with uh, local unions. The trick, though, is, is that the legislation that was passed in Washington and by ballot measure in California, all it does is like carve out a protected space for delivery drivers. It doesn't right. broadly improve access to unions and, and the benefits they could potentially provide to all workers, which is one of the reasons why I'm trying to say, okay, how can we rethink this holistically? And I, maybe think say, I think yeah. you're on a good start. The, the, um, the downside to it is as part of that rethinking, are we coming up with a new set of regulations? Mm-hmm. And which moves us further away. And so if, and it goes back to your, your statement, in, at least in the article, like, you know, you're going to have lobbyists on this side and lobbyists on that side, and one side or the other is probably going to win. And if that's the case, then it's too much imbalance. And it, it's, you're going to still have that pen, pendulum where I go back to, should you just scrap all of it, make sure nobody's killing each other on the streets like in the old days, and let the parties do what they want. Which was I, which was gompers. Yeah, and and I think I think that's what it needs. Uh, I, I think that probably much of the NLRA just needs to be repealed. Uh, maybe maybe keep that spot uh, that clause about uh, you know protected uh, organizing activity uh, so that uh, workers can come together and and co- organize together that that independent third party organizations. Uh, can be declared the representatives of those workers. But other than that, uh, you know, legal clarification that this is, uh, you know, protected, let's say. Um, let the market figure it out. And, and the market does a really good job figuring things out. It's, it's scary uh, because you don't know exactly what's going to emerge but I don't think anybody could have predicted what the world would look like, you know, 20 years ago. Right. Uh, and, and I don't think anybody 20 years before that could have predicted what was going to be the case later, 20 years later. So we don't know what the world's going to look like in 20 years. But we do a pretty good job muddling through it using market-based type approaches that require cooperation rather than compulsion. That's the core value of markets. You want somebody to deal with you, you've, you've got to give them a good reason to do so. It's got to be voluntary. So it's well, all about, yeah. Yeah, and that's what the unions have had a problem with for the last 40 years. It's, Absolutely. They've made it impossible to do or, you know, from a market standpoint, it's, it's easier not to have a union. And that's where they yeah. run into the resistance. Mm-hmm. So, but, but we, if, if unions were the source of higher quality workers, businesses would want to have them. That's true. Yeah, that's, that's been the argument for a while. My argument, at least. <laughs> it's just, in any case, we, I, I should congratulate you. I think this is the longest podcast I've ever done. And I could actually keep going, but I don't know how many Absolutely. listeners we'd have after two hours. So. Maybe we'll have to split it into two. Yeah. <laughs> so let's do this. I, I'm going to keep reading what you're writing and, and let's do this again. 
Um, it'd be fascinating to have you and your colleague who does the market dynamics stuff on as well. We maybe that do. Would be, we could do all three of us on there. That would be wonderful. Yes, it, it's it's been you know my life's work has been around and in and out of labor unions, so it's uh, I always have fun talking about it. And and I so value the input that you've that you've offered uh, because you know someone who's been on the front lines and in the trenches. Um, uh, they have perspective that, you know, someone up in the ivory tower like me can never have. Well, as you know, I basically teach labor relations, but on the, just how the process works, you know, with employees and, and it's just a, it's a fascinating topic to me. And then sometimes I'll, I'll see things where newspaper articles and somebody's writing from a policy wonk standpoint. And I'm like, that is all wrong. You know, it's not how it works. But when I saw yours, I was like, oh, he's onto something here that I've been trying to get to. You know, it's how can unions stay relevant? And if you go from the liberty side as opposed to the compulsion side, you know, there's there's a little known quote out there about Samuel Gompers with the minimum wage. He was he was pro minimum wage, but against minimum wage laws. And he said essentially that if we abdicate our responsibility to the government. It'll show how impotent we are. And mm. I'm, I'm just paraphrasing that. But that was his argument. Like, let's have minimum wages. Just don't do the government. You know, don't do it through the government. And, that, and that's you look excellent. At, well, and then you look at where things have gone to. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, in any case. Well, Michael, I appreciate it. It's uh, been a fascinating conversation. And, and I'm going to put the links. Um, what would you like me to link to in terms of your bio? Uh, just uh, my Mercatus Center bio would be perfect. Okay. Okay. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on Labor Relations Radio. I have enjoyed it so much, and I look forward to returning. Thank you, Peter. All right. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Michael Farron from the Mercatus Institute at George Mason University. And I'm going to leave the links to his articles under the audio portion of this episode. You should check him out. It's interesting. It's an interesting concept that he's got. And I think it'd be good to explore the conversation. I'd love to have the conversation with some union folks and see what they think as well. In any case, if you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment in the comment section of this episode. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List, and thanks for listening. Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.